This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Johns Hopkins Medicine. World-leading cancer treatment is closer than you think. Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center is in the greater Washington area with renowned cancer experts at Sibley and Suburban Hospitals. Find out more at hopkinscancerdc.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And today we bring you two segments on cancer care. Later, we will be speaking with uh, Representative Brian Higgins, who's co-head of the House Cancer Caucus. But first, I am pleased to speak with the Whitehead Institute's Dr. Bob Weinberg and Shilling Chen, uh, Chief Scientific Officer of the Terasaki Institute and the scientific founder of Xylus, a precision oncology company. Dr. Weinberg and Dr. Shen, welcome to you both. Hi, thank you for the invitation. Dr. Weinberg, let's start with you first. Um, it was kind of a big picture question here. Um, you have written the textbook literally on cancer and you've studied cancer for decades. Um, just speaking really broadly, how has our understanding of cancer evolved since you first started, and what have been some of the most big, significant advances in cancer care? Well, uh, when I started this, the origins of human cancer were poorly understood. We really didn't understand why normal cells became converted into cancer cells. And changed starting 1975-76, almost half a century ago, because over the intervening time, We've causes cancer. The the faith, the hope was that understanding the causes of disease would lead, as day follows night, to cures. And in some instances, uh, that has been vindicated that idea. In others, uh, it, it simply uh, is an elusive goal, uh, where knowing the origins of the cancer does not lead directly to treatments for it. Cancer is a highly complex and variable disease, unlike, for example, cardiovascular disease, which by contrast, is very, very simple. And that explains uh, the reason why some cancers are now reasonably treatable and curable, whereas others continue to resist truly effective care and cure. And Dr. Shen, I'd like to toss the same question to you, um, but I want to focus on treatment. What are some of the biggest changes in terms of treatment that we've seen over the course of your career? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing, kind of following up with Dr. Weinberg's right, comments, is about how can you deal with the heterogeneity or diversity. And what what's and as a technologist, right? Thanks for Dr. Weinberg's a lot of you know groundbreaking discovery. We understand those driving forces, but how can you develop a technology that's scalable that can be used in the clinic that can be using scale by pharma company to find uh, companies to find a next generation treatment. So I, I think that's very important. Now we are entering this translational stage that converting those discoveries into technology platforms, for example, genomic sequencing, for example, organoids, these technologies to really finding out the more precise treatment, treatments for the patients. Yeah, I wanna drill into this idea of the diversity that we see in cancer. And we are talking about almost like a huge array of, of different diseases um, and different, um, you know, genetic uh, sequences. And, um, you know, I know many people, many of our listeners are probably familiar with this idea of precision medicine, of specifically 
targeting um, cancers. But Dr. Shen, can you explain that a little bit and how our understanding of cancer has evolved from sort of a single disease to many different kinds of diseases? Yes. So, you know, I was I was the steering chair committee for the NCI, right, Patient Drive Model Consortium, Tissue Engineering Consortium, and I always get asked the question, "Oh, have you guys conquered cancer yet?" Right, to talk to uh, Weinberg's point, I, my my question is always, "Which cancer type you're talking about, and you know, which patient populations?" So we made a lot of progress, but oftentimes the general, you know, the uh, general audience kind of seeing cancer as one thing, and seems we are never there. Um, yeah, kind of. So coming coming back to and answer your your questions, I think that, that really the kind of the, the the effort is being able to you know understand the genomic composition of each cancer type, and then being able to model them uh, you know preclinically before we put them into the patients. So if we think about FDA came up the Modernization Act 2.0, right? Really try to promote patient-derived models to be able to better capture the patient tumor for us to develop therapeutics before we run this very expensive clinical trials, assuming patients are more homogeneous population and often you know, have costly failures. Dr. Weinberg, um, I know that we often if refer I, um, to... Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. If Weinberg. I, if I may add one point. Within a given tumor, there's not just one kind of cancer cell type. As the tumor develops, the, the, the cells within the tumor begin to diversify from one another. And therefore, there may be subpopulations of cells within the tumor that are susceptible to elimination by a, an existing therapy and others that are quite resistant. And this, uh, this intra-tumor heterogeneity is really what thwarts many kinds of what would otherwise be highly successful, indeed curative therapies. Well, tort, tort. on that note, Dr. Weinberg, I did want to ask you, you know, when, when doctors are talking to patients and, and just kind of broadly speaking, you know, we talk about cancer in terms of where it's found in the body, right? Breast cancer, uh, you know, skin cancer, et cetera. But I, I wonder, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, given that there are many different subtypes within this, is talking about cancer in that way the most helpful for patients? Or is there another way that we could talk about it so that they could understand exactly what you're saying about tumors having different genetic makeups and different treatments being needed, depending on what that is? Well, I think it's conceptually a bit challenging to talk about a tumor as being a collection of diverse cancer cell types. One really has to discuss with the patient the dominant cell type, the cancer cell type within a tumor, and how one would treat it, uh, leaving out for the moment the fact that they're the same tumor that are not so susceptible to elimination. So one has to start with simplicity, and if one observes resistance therapy, then one can begin to delve into the complexity of the cells within a single human tumor, not to speak of the differences between uh, tumors from one patient to another. And follow up with uh, you know, Dr. Weinberg's point, I think when you translate into patients also, what does it mean for treatment, right? I think that the notion of one treatment cure the patient Again, for surgery, sometimes possible for very early stage cancer patients. But then we're kind of really, you know, kind of uh, growing into a, into an era where the cancer might be a more continuous, right, uh, chronic control kind of disease where you have an effective treatment, but then there's a subpopulation is going to emerge, 
and the key is how to have a close loop in terms of detection method to detect you know, the, the emergence of new resistant clones early and then have the treatment uh, to target them. For example, the recent uh, advance of cell-free DNA where you can test in the blood, detecting right, got new tumor clones or, or minimal residual disease, uh, this uh, you know, uh, uh, additional population early on and be able to find out treatment to treat these patients. I think that will kind of really evolve. So we will continually battling the evolution of cancer and keep it under control. That might bring a lot of benefits for patients. And let's talk for a minute about um, the role of genetics versus behavior in terms of cancer. And of course, we all want to think that we can eat this or that food or do this or that exercise to um, prevent cancer. Um, but Dr. Shen, can you talk a little bit about what we've learned there in terms of um, the, the balance between genetics and behavior? And of course, I know this is also different depending on which kind of cancer. But can you can you address that? Yeah, great uh, great question. And I think first, as Dr. Weinberg uh, pointed out, the cancer is a heterogeneous population. You have different cancer population, uh, cancer population. And the second is that uh, the tumor also grow doesn't grow in a vacuum. They grow in a microenvironment. Means they interact with many other cell types, like immune and uh, stromal cells that get reprogrammed by cancer and becoming kind of kind of accomplice, supporting their growth. And then there's the whole body or systemic effect where the nutrients, metabolism, immune systems, all of them are, are play into uh, the cancer growth. And last things, let's not forget, right? The cancer cells itself themselves often don't kill uh, the patient. It's really the organ failure or cacassia, which is the wasting away diseases, as many of you heard about, right? You associate cancer patients with very skinny and loose appetite and loose muscle, right? So these are, you know, these are uh, Phenomenon that cancer causes that and and end up doing harm to the patients. So now I think you know besides looking at at a cancer genetics, we have to look at a cancer as a more holistic disease and thinking about treatments in a more holistic way. And Dr. Weinberg, um, as you reflect back on your career, um, you know I know we've seen huge improvements in um, survival rates for some types of cancer, less so for for other types, but. Overall, uh, how optimistic or pessimistic are you when you're looking at how the progress that we have made over the last few decades? Well, we've made enormous progress in certain areas. You should know uh, the adjusted mortality from breast cancer is down by 40 to 43 percent over the last several decades. That's a major gain, and that con compares with other kinds of cancer cancers, which to date seem relatively bulletproof. For example, pancreatic cancer is extremely um, difficult to treat successfully or to cure. Um, the same can be said for advanced uh, lung cancer. This is a long, hard slog, and the, the big successes are not going to come easily. We thought they might uh, 20 or 30 years ago, but that initial optimism uh, was not warranted. Still, at present, we have so many different technologies that can begin to anticipate the evasive maneuvers that cancer cells may uh, undertake in response to being confronted with toxic therapies that we throw against them. Um, that having been said, you can ask the question, uh, will we ever cure cancer? Well, it, right now, that's a distant goal if you imply curing all kinds of cancer. 
uh, how can we best uh, reduce mortality, which may be part of your question. Prevention is critically important, as you asked before. Some of the major reductions in cancer mortality have come over the last decade or two from reductions in, for example, smoking and uh, reductions in diet. So prevention is ultimately vastly more effective in preventing the onset of a disease than trying to cure the disease once it appears. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and Dr. Shen, I know that there's increasing talk about, you know, just living with cancer and almost treating it um, like, like a chronic disease. Can I get your thoughts on that? Is that kind of where we're headed here? Yes, I think, you know, again, as Dr. Weinberg said, right, kind of we, different cancer type are very different. We made a great progress for some, for example, a lot of blood cancers now with new technologies such as cell therapies, we can almost eradicate them. Solid tumors, you know, means tumor, you know, tumors growing the organ is much more challenging. And uh, often because of the diversity, the heterogeneity, the access to the tumor, the uh, suppressive environment, there's many factors that are making them uh, more challenging. But for this cancer type, as I said, if we, um, as Dr. Weinberg pointed out, if we combine early diagnostic technologies that's really booming right now with kind of more real-time treatments that we can, you know, have more precise treatment, more adaptive, adaptive treatment that according to this diagnostic technology and, and, and can apply it to the patients early or making preventative uh, actions, that might really uh, bring the biggest uh, difference to patient survival. For example, right now, I give one example. Nowadays, a lot of patients had a surgery. Before, we just had to wait out, you know, two years, four years to see if this tumor will uh, relapse or recur. Now, with the cell-free DNA technology, we can detect the, you know, the, the re-emergence of tumor much earlier in the blood. But then the key is how you're going to treat these patients because the patients tell clinicians, say, look, what are you going to do about it? And we said, we don't have the guidelines to treat. Right, these kind of you know early detection while you cannot see them on CT scan or MRI. So I think there's a really I need a lot of technology development on those end to really kind of close the loop and being able to you know start treating those disease earlier rather than wait till they kind of grow back again and become a much uh, more challenging problem. So I know when we're talking about survival rates overall, the news is great and we're seeing um, survival rates go up. But I wanted to raise one point I know is of great concern, um, and that is cancer among younger Americans, particularly women, is on the rise with certain types of cancer, including gastrointestinal, endocrine, and breast cancers, climbing at the fastest rates. Uh, Dr. Weinberg, what do you attribute to this? And do you have any recommendations to correct this trend? Well, we don't really understand with great clarity and precision why uh, the, the rates of cancer are increasing, for example, among young women. But we do know uh, ways to reduce general cancer incidence, that is how often it appears. And I'll just mention that avoiding smoking, having a lean body mass, uh, and eating a relatively vegetarian diet should be able together to reduce the incidence, that is how often it occurs, by as much percent of cancer. And again, clearly tumors that don't appear don't have to be cured. It could be that in fact, the rapidly increasing uh, risk of cancer among young American women is in part uh, tied, believe it or not, to obesity. 
Obesity is, after smoking, the second most common cause of cancer. And for example, in certain kinds of cancer, like ovarian cancer, the risk of developing this kind of tumor increases by much as much as a factor of four in heavily uh, obese women. So diet and, and dietary practices and lifestyle are actually important in preventing the appearance of cancers. And I just Dr. want to follow up on Dr. Weinberg's point, right? This is excellent. So I kind of have my personal, a little anecdotal uh, observation, but I grew up in China. I remember when I was very young and the last generation, right? There's very few people get colon cancer and, and you know, some of these um, kind of diseases. And, and nowadays it's become very prevalent. So that's kind of suggesting, and one, once they, especially in big cities, I grew up in Shanghai, where people, people kind of adopting more Western diet, you have a lot more, uh, you know, kind of fat, you know, fructose, processed food, a lot, of, a lot more red meat, right? If you think about the difference uh, now and uh, back then. And now if you look at those populations, uh, you know, the diseases like colon cancer, the GI disease or breast cancer are really kind of catching up and following the same trend. So what that's suggesting is that it's not all just right genetics. I think the lifestyle uh, play a big role in kind of earlier onset of those diseases. Of course, obesity rate, right, in let's say in China kind of really shot up uh, significantly compared to when I grew up. So that's all like, you know, circumstantial evidence suggesting that these lifestyle uh, factors really play the role in early onset. And Dr. Shen, uh, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but I do want to ask you, you know, we have the chair of the House Cancer Caucus coming on to speak with us next. And I'm wondering, do you have a message for him in terms of what the federal government could do in terms of advancing the fight against cancer? I, I think I think there are really two messages. One is we have to be persistent. I think it's been going on for a while, right? Sometimes I hear people, you know, my Uber driver is like, hey, well, you know, why we, what are scientists doing? Like, seems we are not getting closer. But as Dr. Weinberg pointed out, we are getting much closer. But because it's a such a complex disease, you know, people see from outside as one disease, oftentimes don't appreciate the significant progress we have made. Like, from compared to 20 years ago, we are completely right uh, in a different uh, kind of stage right now. And we can kind of see, uh, kind of, we are inching closer. And the second is really we are talking about individual patients. And while, while we, we make every progress, we always see these patients, you see their family, the impact made on them. Um, so I think, of, you know, really thinking about a policy, I think we need to be persistent. We need to have better dialogue between policymakers and scientists for them to really understand where, where are the uh, areas that give you best return on investment, right? In terms of what are the uh, areas that we are in a uh, cusp of making significant impact uh, for patients, and we should double down on those areas. And Dr. Weinberg, let me toss that question to you too. Do you have a message for Congressman Higgins? Yes, uh, reaching the cure for cancer was said 50 years ago when President Nixon started the war on cancer, that the disease was going to be cured. But as we've learned over the intervening half century, cancer is actually a very evasive and elusive foe and we'll have to take one step at a time. We're not gonna cure cancer next year or maybe even within a decade. Some tumors will begin to, uh, uh, be, uh, will begin to become vulnerable to uh, elimination, whereas others will remain as resistant uh, if you just are now. But we have to keep pushing because as we keep pushing, 
And as we continue to be patient, we will make progress, slow but steady progress in a whole series of different kinds of cancer. It's not as if this is all standing still. Cancer therapy is being made more and more effective every year. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately, but Dr. Weinberg, Dr. Shen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor at Fortune. The early detection of cancer allows for intervention that slows cancer spread and helps treat it at a more curable stage. Joining me to discuss options for screening and the importance of an accurate diagnosis is Andrea Richardson, the Peter and Judy Kovler Professor in Breast Cancer Research at Johns Hopkins Medicine National Capital Region, as well as Pune Razavi, Director of Breast Imaging at Johns Hopkins Medicine National Capital. Welcome to the both of you. Dr. Richardson, I'd love to kick things off with you first. What types of cancer are detectable through screening and what are the types of screening options available? We have a number of uh, different screening tests that are available. One of the oldest screening tests is pap smears for cervical cancer, the implementation of which led to a big decrease in the mortality uh, uh, for women for, from cervical cancer. We also have mammograms and other forms of breast imaging that detect breast cancer at an earlier stage, um, colonoscopy or fecal uh, DNA testing for colon cancer, and PSA is a blood test that uh, is a screening test for prostate cancer. And then finally, we have low-dose annual chest CT for lung cancer screening for patients who are at high risk of lung cancer. Quite a few options there. How significant is an accurate diagnosis to determine the best treatment and where the complexities of doing so? Now that we have the ability to detect cancers at an early stage, the diagnosis is usually by a core needle biopsy or a fine needle aspirate that, that withdraws just a small amount of tissue. So our diagnosis requires a lot of expertise um, and experience to be able to make the correct diagnosis of cancer in that situation. We also have to do a lot of molecular testing and immunohistochemical testing to determine the biomarkers that will determine what type of treatment the patient will receive. For instance, if a patient has lung cancer, we want to know if they have a particular mutation because there's different drugs that are useful in different for different mutations. Let's touch on that expertise that's needed, Dr. Razavi. How important is it to choose a diagnostic specialist to conduct one screening? Well, it is extremely important to choose a specialist to uh, interpret a screening study. For example, when it comes to breast cancer, um, all of the radiologists at all the Hopkins sites, including Sibley and Suburban and the Bethesda site, are all subspecialty trained and specialized in looking for small breast cancers. Our goal is to find breast cancer early to decrease mortality and morbidity associated with it. Yeah. Talk to us about Johns Hopkins' multidisciplinary approach to assessing cases and to developing treatment plans. 
We're very proud of our multidisciplinary approach and program here at all the Hopkins sites, including Sibley and Suburban. Uh, when a patient is diagnosed with breast cancer, there's a smooth handoff from the breast imaging department to the breast surgeons who only do breast surgery. They are not general surgeons. They are all subspecialty trained in breast surgery and taking care of breast cancer patients. We work closely as a team with the medical oncologists who are dedicated to breast cancer as well as radiation oncologists. It's a seamless approach. We want to make it easy for the patient to not have to take on the burden of coordinating her own care. Um, we take that on. Yeah, quite a comprehensive approach for the both of you. Are there any developments in cancer screening that we should look out for as we move forward? Well, when it comes to breast imaging, we're very excited about AI. AI for mammography is showing very promising data. It is not going to take the place of a mammographer at this point, but it is going to be useful and helpful as a double read. So our hope is to read the mammograms in conjunction with the AI as a double read. In terms of diagnosis, AI is also be, uh, coming into the field of pathology. And uh, for screening, we have new blood tests based on circulating free DNA that can detect a lot of cancers that currently don't have a screening test available. So that's one of the new developments that's coming down the pike. Yeah, great to see the rapid progression in this space. And this is certainly a critical conversation as we look to improve cancer survival rates. Thank you both for your time, doctors. And now back to the Washington Post. Thank you. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And I am now joined by Congressman Brian Higgins, Democrat from New York, who is also co-chair of the House Cancer Caucus. Congressman, welcome to Post Live. Happy to be with you, Paige. Thank you. Um, Congressman Higgins, it's obviously been an eventful couple of weeks for the House, um, but as all of you try to get back to normal business, um, can you tell me a little bit about what the House Cancer Caucus does, who, what are its goals, uh, who are its members, and how is it prioritized in Congress? It's a bipartisan group of members of Congress uh, who are pledged to uh, promote uh, federal uh, government funding for cancer research. Um, it's very, very important, as the doctor said on the previous segment, that we be persistent and uh, getting uh, the proper funding uh, to the National Cancer Institute and National Institutes of Health uh, to fund all important uh, cancer research is critical to the success of reducing death and suffering uh, from cancer. So on that note of funding, um, I know that funding for the National Institutes of Health and by extension, the Cancer Institute has long been bipartisan. Um, although, of course, lately we've seen obviously a very fractious house. Um, do you expect it to continue to be a bipartisan issue going forward? I do. I think the members are committed. In many cases, they will have a comprehensive cancer institute in their, uh, in their districts. Uh, of which there are 72 that are designated by the National Cancer Institute as a comprehensive cancer center. I have one in my district, Roswell Park Cancer Institute, and uh, there are many members, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania, Kathy Castor uh, in Florida, and most of the members have an association with uh, an institute that does uh, cancer research in their districts. But I will tell you a story. 
And this is when I really kind of got involved as a member of Congress in this issue. <clears throat> it was back in 2005 that uh, the head of the National Cancer Institute, uh, they established a campaign called the 2015 campaign, 2015. Uh, the objective of which was to eliminate all death and suffering uh, attributed to cancer by the year 2015. This was 2005. That evening, uh, when all the cancer advocates converged on Capitol Hill, Congress passed a resolution in support of the National Cancer Institute's goal of uh, eliminating all death and suffering due to cancer by 2015. Uh, Six months later, Congress cut funding for cancer research. And it occurred to me at that point that the resolution was not, it didn't have any force of law or budget behind it, but it was an expression of Congress's support for the goals. But that doesn't mean anything unless there is law and funding behind it. And it occurred to me that the cancer community, those who are involved in, in cancer research and Congress, has a communication problem and that we needed to bring those two communities closer together so people understand the importance of cancer research. And, you know, innovation is by its very definition inefficient. Uh, most clinical trials uh, in the cancer space fail uh, up to 90%. But the only failure in cancer research is when you quit or you're forced to quit because of lack of funding. And that's why uh, the themes that were presented today, prevention, early detection, are critically important. Smoking, for example, 90% of all lung cancers are attributed to smoking. Uh, there's a report out of uh, the University of California, Davis, that says there are 12 other cancers and those deaths could be reduced by 50% if you eliminated uh, smoking altogether. So that's in the area uh, of prevention, just in the area of early detection. And I think this is critically important as well. Less than, less than 10% of cancer deaths are attributed to the original tumor. It's when cancer moves, when it, uh, when it advances, when it metastasizes to another organ, is when it be an organ that you can't live without, that's when it becomes lethal. So if you are uh, diagnosed with a cancer at one stage one or two, your, your, your likelihood of survival beyond five years of your designation is much higher than it would be if you were uh, diagnosed at stage three or four. I wanna go back to um, what you said about that very ambitious goal of um, 2005, um, that, that was set then. Um, uh, obviously, we unfortunately didn't achieve that, but I know President Biden has said that his ultimate goal is to cut cancer death rates by at least 50% in the next 25 years, while also turning more cancers from death sentences into chronic diseases people can live with. What's your analysis of where we are towards that goal and how like we are, likely we are to achieve it? Yeah, I think, you know, what's most important here, it's good to set up goals and recognizing that they're not always achievable, uh, specific to the, you know, the, the, the time frame within which what's most important is that we're making progress toward the goal. And I think when you look at since uh, 2000 or 1991, cancer deaths have been reduced by about 30% or even more. And that is good progress toward the goal. And that just underscores the importance 
of doing robust uh, funding for cancer research throughout the nation. Uh, the federal government, as you uh, indicated in your earlier introduction, uh, NCI, the National Cancer Institute, is the largest funder of cancer research in the world. And as I said, it's very, very expensive. So, you know, the pharmaceutical companies aren't doing the basic research because there's no profit uh, motive in that. It's all costs. But the idea is to advance cancer research, to develop new treatments uh, so that, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies will pick it up and market uh, various uh, products uh, in the cancer space. So I think it's very important to understand that cancer research is a public-private enterprise, and we depend on both uh, to develop uh, promising therapies. If you look at the history uh, of cancer uh, throughout the world, um, you know, there's only three ways you could deal with it. You could cut it out with surgery, you could burn it out with radiation, or you could poison it out with chemical or chemotherapy. Uh, now we have found ways to, to enhance the body's own immune system, not only to, to kill cancer, but to find it, uh, which is often very, very difficult as well. And all of this is a direct result of the progress that's been made uh, as it relates to cancer research. Now we have, you know, targeted therapies. David G. Nation, uh, David G. Nathan, uh, the president emeritus at um, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, wrote a book called The Cancer Revolution. And in it, he focused on those areas of, of targeted treatments like Herceptin, Trastuzumab is the, the chemical name, but that, that targeted therapy kills the cancer cell without destroying the healthy cells. Uh, same is true for a drug called Gleevec for gastrointestinal stromal tumors. And so we see, you know, throughout the most recent history, uh, good progress has been made uh, because of the research dollars that have gone into developing new promising therapies, which extend life, but also extend the quality of life as you're going through your treatments. You mentioned the role the federal government plays in funding cancer research. How would you score the federal government at this juncture for the, the resources it's providing? And do we need more? I think we certainly need more. Uh, last year uh, or this year, uh, Congress will authorize about $7.8 billion uh, to the National Cancer Institute, which is an improvement of about $500 million over last year. Uh, but you can always use more. As I said, uh, this is a difficult thing to, to, to research because most clinical trials, I mean, think of all the money, all the effort, all the hopes that goes into developing a promising therapy. And then when you go to uh, the clinical trial phase that tests the efficacy and the safety of a drug, uh, and many times they fail, but you got to persist. As uh, the previous uh, speakers said, it's very, very important that, you know, that, that we recognize that the only failure in cancer research is when you quit or you're forced to quit because of lack of funding. I, I want to take one moment to ask you about uh, Monica Bertagnoli, who has been leading the National Cancer Institute, and of course now her nomination to lead the National Institutes of Health is moving on the Hill. Any thoughts on her work uh, at the Institute and how she might do as head of NIH? Yeah, she's great. I mean, she's terrific. She's a rock star. And uh, not only is she a researcher, she's also a cancer survivor. 
uh, and she speaks, you know, to groups uh, in ways that they can understand in, in, in compelling ways, which underscores, you know, the, con the importance of prevention, the importance of early detection, and all the things, all the tools that are available to us uh, to ensure that we can prevent cancer from occurring in the first place. Uh, but also, if you are diagnosed with cancer, it's an early detection, so will, so as to increase uh, the quality uh, of the, the the experience based on on survivorship. You may have seen that uh, recently here at the Post, our health and science team published a series on the declining life expectancy uh, of Americans, and one of the pieces in particular looked at the difference between red states and blue states, and has seen unfortunately, larger declines in red states. Now, I know this is controversial and there are a lot of factors at play here, but I'm just wondering, as a Democratic member, how do you think about that? And do you think GOP policies are playing any role here in this red state, blue state divide on life expectancy? Yeah, first of all, I would say this is not controversial. This is a fact of life that we need to deal with. And, you know, when you look at the Affordable Care Act, which I was proud to work on and support, uh, 35 million people got health care that previously didn't have it. Uh, it used to be that if you had a kid uh, that was stuck with childhood cancer, uh, an insurance company could deny you coverage uh, because of a pre-existing condition. You can't do that anymore. It's against the law. So, you know, we have to continue to invest uh, in, uh, you know, the health and safety of the American people. And when you see those things declining, you are obviously going to see a reduction in life expectancy in the richest country in the world. Uh, we don't have the best healthcare system in the world. Uh, we need to do much better. The Affordable Care Act was not nearly enough. You know, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, they voted 50 times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Now, you know, typically, if you're going to destroy something, you better have a more positive alternative. There was never a more positive alternative, meaning that a lot of people were going to lose the health care that they were depending on. Uh, there are essential services that have to be covered under an insurance policy because, you know, oftentimes you look at the history of health insurance in this country, you know, your premiums get jacked up because of co-pays. Uh, because of deductibles. And then when you go to use the health care that you've already paid too much for, you found prior to the Affordable Care Act that there was very little underlying health insurance. Uh, that is a situation that has to be improved upon. And it has been since the Affordable Care Act, but we can't stop there. Uh, we have to continue uh, to, to invest in important research that will increase survivorship of our people so that uh, life expectancy does not decline. This is a very, very uh, important issue. It is not controversial. It is scientific fact. And it's, 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 it's you know, alarming. Uh, and it should be to every member of Congress that we need to and should be doing much better. That same series also talked about uh, smoking rates and some differences there, higher smoking rates in red states compared with blue states. Um, and you had mentioned, I know that lung cancer is a particular focus of yours. Um, obviously, we have made huge progress overall as a country on lowering smoking rates. But in your view, what else needs to be done on that? Well, it's the, lung cancer is the deadliest cancer, uh, 154 deaths 
uh, a year. Uh, people die from from cancer out of uh, nearly two million people uh, that uh, will be uh, cancer new cancer cases. Uh, so that's very very important that we focus in on that. And it's, again, it's a prevention issue. It's 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 informing people. But currently, only six percent of those who are eligible get screened for lung cancer. And you know that just doesn't do it. So you've got to get into those states with campaigns that uh, associate uh, lung cancer and uh, the high, the, the lethal nature of lung cancer with the alarming uh, rates of uh, deaths every single year. And uh, lung cancer, you've seen the commercials. Uh, it is, it, there's a lot of suffering. Uh, there's a lot of pain that goes with it, not only for the afflicted, uh, but those who love the afflicted. Uh, so there's an incentive for all of us uh, to do much better. And as I said, we are, the United States is 5% of the world's population or 25% of the world's economy. Uh, the National Cancer Institute is the largest cancer research uh, institution in all the world. If the United States does not provide leadership for its own people, but also for the value of these treatments in this science in terms of uh, being a basis from which new therapies are developed, uh, there's no leadership in the world without the United States in, in, the, in the cancer space and the cancer research uh, space. I'm struck by what you said about only 6% of people who are eligible getting screening for lung cancer. You hear all the time about when you need to start getting your mammogram or your colonoscopy. Why do you think it is that people are so unaware of screening for lung cancer? I think, you know, I think people know they shouldn't smoke, uh, but there just seems to be a lot less publicity around the screening part of it. Well, the one thing we know is, you know, there's a reason we study the humanities. Uh, it's a study of human nature, and human nature never changes. And I think there's a fear factor. You know, people don't want to, you know, they think if they ignore it, it will go away. But we're obviously learning that that's not the case. So there's a reluctance. And I think, you know, right here in Buffalo at Roswell Park Cancer Institute, uh, we have screening uh, that goes out to the neighborhoods. Uh, it's a mobile screening unit. And that has been helpful and increasing uh, the number of people that get screened for lung cancer. Uh, these are in, in uh, economically disadvantaged areas where people just, you know, don't have the transportation, don't have the time uh, to come into, you know, a, an institution, a, a building. So uh, Roswell is going into the neighborhoods uh, to promote uh, cancer screening, which makes it easier uh, for people to get the screening that they need and hopefully uh, get uh, diagnosed at a very early stage uh, before the lethality of, of, of lung cancer sets in. Well, Congressman, we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I do want to ask you a non-cancer-related question, uh, and that is related to the fact you're on the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. Uh, we saw another mass shooting last week. Uh, what would you like to see Congress do in the wake of the tragedy in Maine? Well, ban assault weapons, number one. If you look at all these shootings, you know, from Sandy Hook uh, to Buffalo, it was one shooter <clears throat> that should not have had a gun and a multitude of fatalities in a very, very short period of time. Uh, mil Military-style weapons should not be in the hands of civilians, uh, particularly those who have a history of mental health illnesses. Uh, all of these shootings, virtually all of these shootings uh, in the United States was one shooter with a, a automatic uh, weapon, assault rifle, 
uh, that killed up, killed a lot of people in a very short period of time. That in and of itself uh, should underscore you know, the severity of the problem, but also uh, provide some clarity about what is necessary to solve that problem. Well, Congressman Higgins, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.